Hello and welcome to the Not A Cast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter per episode. But uh, right now, since one of our hosts is is absent off doing his job, uh, Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish, I, your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin, I'm going to be doing some guest episodes where I, I interview some of our favorite people. Uh, last week we did uh, Mary from the Learned Hands podcast, and this week I'm very uh, excited to welcome back to the Not A Cast podcast. Please, everyone, welcome back, Manu. Thanks so much for coming on, buddy. Hey, thanks for having me back, Emmett. Uh, to everyone out there, I'm Manu, also known as Nuclear Bomb on social media, or everywhere I want you to find me on social media. Um, you might remember me from such previous coverage as Game of Thrones and comic book movies. Um, you know, those discourse darlings that everyone loves <laughs> to talk about and are never fraught with all sorts of issues. Um, and I'm here today to talk a little bit about my new project or my current project. Um, I've begun covering the Metal Gear Solid video game franchise uh, with my friend Brian, also known as Cosmos, on Twitter and social media. Um, our podcast is called Podcast Sans Frontieres. Um, sorry, I will not say it in French because I do not speak French. <laughs> um, podcast Without Borders, modeled after an organization within the universe called uh, Militaries Without Borders. Um, I will say that Not a Cast is an inspiration to it. Um, the level of coverage, analysis, and deep dives you and Jeff do are a big reason that I wanted to do this with something that I love. Uh, just as much as a song is a, a song of ice and fire, and as much as you guys love a song of ice and fire, and we basically came up with this idea the day that Oscar Isaac was cast as Solid mm. Snake. Um, I still have a lot of reservations about a Metal Gear Solid <laughs> movie and whether it even gets made. Um, but if it does end up being one of those uh, cultural juggernauts or IP darlings in the end, um, I'll be I'll have been glad to get out in front of that with what I think of it. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of what I'm bringing to the table today, Emmett. Well, I'm so excited to get that going, buddy, and I'm so glad that we could uh, could inspire you along the way. And yeah, I was I had I had similarly divided feelings upon hearing that movie announcement. Much as I think Oscar Isaac is is a kind of perfect choice for that, I am curious to see how it translates because of some of the lot of what we're going to be talking about. How very specific to the medium of video games Metal Gear Solid is, and we'll see what's special about it could translate. But before we get into anything resembling that, I thought we would start out by by talking about our relationship to the Metal Gear Solid franchise and how we started playing it. So how did you, what was the beginning of the road that led you to uh, starting a podcast about this franchise? I was kind of playing video games ever since I was four or five with the original NES, Nintendo Entertainment System, uh, the Marios, the Zeldas, Final Fantasy. I got into all that as a very young kid. Um, I was about 12 or 13 when my buddy had a um, video game magazine, and I can't remember what it was, EGM or Game Informer or something, but it had this wonderful drawing of what would turn out to be Solid Snake, um, done by the art designer of Metal Gear Solid, Yoji Shinkawa, um, and big letters, the last great PlayStation game, Metal Gear Solid. Because um, I knew that the PlayStation 2 was in the works at this point, so you know we're kind of approaching the end of a console life. Um, so when something is hailed as the last great game or something, it kind of catches your eye. Um, Metal Gear had a little bit of, you know, video game cultural cachet from some older games uh, during the MSX and NES era, but it wasn't like a beloved title like a Mario or a Zelda. Um, so um, that got me, you know, interested in the game. And then when the game landed in uh, September, October 1998, um, let me tell you, buddy, I was blown away. Um, games up until that point were not very story driven. Um, and even if they were, they were still video game stories like, you know, Zelda with little text on the screen. Um, there's a plot to move forward, but it wasn't 
a movie or like kind of that kind of level of entertainment. Um, uh, Hideo Kojima, the you know brain behind a lot of Metal Gear Solid, um, he called it digital fusion, where he wants to fuse games and cinema. So it's one, a cohesive uh, kind of experience where um, the cutscenes and the gameplay and everything that's happening all seems to be part of one whole, as opposed to games up until that point where um, you would have cutscenes like, say, Final Fantasy VII, but those were rendered in really beautiful special effects. And then you get into the gameplay and it was just a couple polygons moving around. Um, so combining all that, and it was definitely the first game with significant voice acting, uh, and like good voice performances, because a lot of video game acting at this point was we'll take the first cut. Uh, so you never really, you know, care how the performance came across. But um, the game is filled with uh, some stellar audio performances, maybe most of all David Hayter, known as Solid Snake. Um, the game also featured stealth mechanics. Um, most games at this point were pretty much blow shit up. Uh, Doom, Duke Nukem, uh, GoldenEye, those kind of defined the genre. But uh, this one was more about hide and seek, about environmental cues, uh, knowing when you can sneak past guards as opposed to, um, you know, having to blow blow them sky high. And as the series would progress, they build out these mechanics more and more. But um, ultimately, I think what really mattered was that it was a game that had something to say. Um, it was steeped in 1990s politics about um, anti-nuclear proliferation, uh, the end of the Cold War. Um, the revolution of military affairs and how all that sort of stuff um, was uh, affecting media, affecting culture and affecting um, because before 9-11, people were calling that time the end of history, kind of like all the major conflicts had been settled. Um, American hegemony had kind of settled across the world a little bit. There was, of course, conflict and proxy wars and all that stuff. But 9-11 kind of ended the end of history, so to speak. But there was a time where everyone kind of felt this was how it was going to be for the foreseeable future. And um, the one last thing I want to say is uh, Metal Gear Solid is a game that engages the medium of video games, like what it means to play a digital representation of yourself. Um, and the games don't just look at the story on the screen. They think about the controller, about the memory card slots. Um, it, all sorts of thought goes into it that goes beyond just this is a story that you're kind of playing along with on the screen. It's really... Um, tackling the medium head-on and at that point uh, with video games that was very much the rarity really well said i think it, it definitely is a before and after kind of moment i think uh, culturally and how people engage with the game you know something like you know psycho in movies or you know go far back as as rates of spring you know when a, the, the 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 nature of a medium and how the audience relates to it changed and i like your comparison to the final fantasy games because that's also when you think about before and after game-changing video games of that time. Obviously, people bring up Final Fantasy VII as being very immersive and it had a, an ad campaign like nothing else in a big epic story. And like you say, yeah, those those cutscenes. But yeah, there is also that that very strong gap between the the visually expressive cutscene part of the games and the, the actual player-oriented gameplay parts of the games, which were st still looked great for the time. But th the gap was so noticeable that it's still... It still wasn't trying to immerse you in what was happening and it's in, in kind of a singular experience in the way you're talking with about Metal Gear Solid where there's a lot of attention paid to to every thread being drawn together. And that definitely stood out to me at the time as well. I wasn't as into video games as a lot of my friends. I was kind of the often the, the one on the couch who was more just watching than playing. But I, you know, I knew what I loved. And while I definitely enjoyed uh, hopping around as Zelda and Mario, I, d I was 
drawn to uh, RPGs and JRPGs, JRPGs when I was younger, just because I liked the the complexity of it, the level of detail, and the hints of epic storylines. Right around the same time as uh, FF7 came out, Final Fantasy Tactics also came out, which was which was my jam for a long time. I love that game. That's that's a that's a serious nostalgic favorite of mine because that that's when we're just the density is endless in terms of all the tinkering you can do, but also the storyline is really ambitious, and is is kind of a, it's a War of the Roses riff actually strangely in kind of the same way as Song of Ice and Fire is. Uh, it came out around the same time, which is just funny that in the the mid to late nineties people were just doing War of the Roses riffs, I guess. No, I was going to say, and I wanted to kind of build off that because you mentioned Psycho as well. And another thing that struck me about these games was that they're very cinematically influenced. Mm-hmm. Um, when I say it's a game that has cutscenes, I don't just mean it has uh, scenes where the story is the focus, like camera angle, mise-en-scene. Like Hideo Kojima is more uh, compared to directors, like film directors, than he is necessarily um, you know, video game directors um, because it's a very cinematic uh, game, not just because of having cutscenes, but the cutscenes are actually shot in a way that's not like three-quarter angle shot, reverse shot. There's a lot of thought put into it. And the influences from uh, James Bond to The Hunt for Red October, The Rock, the story could basically be summarized as um, the story of Die Hard occurring in the setting of The Thing. Um, it's basically <laughs> sure. a solo infiltration mission. You know, a little bit of that's Predator true. in there. Right in that, that uh, shadow, optic. Yeah. yeah that that's Shadow right. Moses, uh, what's it called? Alaskan... Uh, setting so um i think that's another thing is uh and that's you know when i say not a cast as inspiration you and jeff bring a lot of you know book and film knowledge to a song of ice and fire and you can see things whether martin's you know intentionally invoking them or just happens to run with parallel ideas at the time you can see a lot of the same things happening with uh kojima and the metal gear solid series and other popular uh media at the time absolutely and what you were saying about how it it addressed the form and medium of video games and made you aware of your own input within it is also similar to kind of how movies evolved where there's like the classical like what they call the invisible style of hollywood editing where it's trying to make you forget that you're watching a movie and forget that you are an audience member and kind of forget your own brain really while you're watching and you're just kind of immersed in what's happening and then there's the french new wave and new hollywood and the idea that you know we are interested in the mechanics of movies and in what the audience brings to the table and in making you somewhat uncomfortable not just in a suspenseful way but in a what's happening and what is my part in this way in a way that metal gear solid yeah kind of attacked the border between you and the game in a way that was interesting in a way that i think made a lot of people eager to find that kind of other experience in video games but what's interesting is is that kind of experience is associated often with like experimental and hoity-toity games and games that you know people write essays about and find a, a devoted audience but generally a small one but metal gear, metal gear solid was a hit And I think it also has to do with what you're talking about, about the Cold War action film, anime influences, stuff that I think hits with a large audience, even if they're not that into or just don't particularly care about the more more kind of meta aspects, which is what makes it interesting, as we'll talk more about later when you get to Metal Gear Solid 2 and the meta aspects completely take over. Yeah. Um, And I think, you know, that's a little bit of, you know, there's some crossover with A Song of Ice and Fire because... What was that, you know, it's kind of wrote at this point, but that sales pitch of Sopranos meets uh, Lord of the Rings or whatever. Sure, um, right. Sopranos in Middle Earth. Yep. Um, I have a lot of friends who just don't buy into the fantasy genre generally. Like, they would never watch Lord of the Rings or anything kind of like that. But they were all in on Game of Thrones because it seemed to be, it has that, you know, that aesthetic. But what's the story underneath goes beyond just the medieval setting and kind of, you know, themes and stuff that were related to that time period. It's 
using a genre we're familiar with to explore it in ways that we're not familiar with. Um, and I think that's, uh, you know, a strength of both of the uh, series and stories. Yeah, it's being, it's, you know, this is reductive, but it's being smart and cool at the same time, which I think is, is the sweet spot in a lot of ways when you're, when you're dealing with genre fiction. And I think, I think Metal Gear Solid uh, definitely hit that sweet spot. So we will talk more about stuff in the individual games and, and the gameplay, the larger themes and kind of how those are integrated. But now that we've talked broadly about how we came to the series, I think we should talk about, you know, what, what is it exactly that, that happens in Metal Gear Solid? Because there's a lot that happens, and a lot of it is, especially your first time through playing a, a, a given game, is very veiled, and you, you, you learn things later, and there's lots of twists. So I, and there's even, there's even a lot of stuff that, uh, that, that I'm kind of hazy on. So as, as, as the expert in the room and the one who's, who's starting his own project on it, I wanted to, to turn it over to you and tell us, what is, what is really the story of, of Metal Gear Solid? All right, so um, your spoiler warning, as always, is all published <laughs> games, five number titles, three more canonical games, histories, interviews, uh, Metal Gear Solid 5 deleted chapters, as well as Metal Gear Solid the movie. <laughs> Anything and everything. Beautiful, beautiful. Okay, no, not really. Um, so I'm going to give a pretty broad uh, summary of the story, but uh, much like A Song of Ice and Fire, um, and you can even compare its uh, Phantom Game of Thrones, like you can never capture all the detail in the story, even with a synopsis, even with a visual um, adaptation of it. So um, I'm going to kind of elide some of the smaller twists and get into the bigger ones. Um, also, there are, I think, seven games that totally count as canon and 11 total games because there's a lot of side stuff. But anything that Hideo Kojima didn't really have his hands on isn't really considered canon. Um, it's mostly... A lot of the other stuff is different format kind of games, like Metal Gear Survive is kind of like a zombie game offshoot um, using kind of right. the same systems, but not really tying into the story in a canonical way. So um, so I'm going to give a big, big picture summary real quick, and then I'll go through the timeline a little bit. So the Metal Gear Solid story roughly spans the Cold War through 2014, so modern day. Um, and it's basically the story of two protagonists, uh, first... Uh, Naked Snake, a.k.a. Big Boss, who basically is the first half of the saga, and then Solid Snake, who is his clone son, uh, the second half of the saga. Um, and they're both fighting against basically the invisible power brokers of their time. Um, during the Big Boss, Naked Snake era, era it's called the Philosophers, and these were people from Russia, China, America, who kind of combined their wealth before the wo World Wars to make sure that whatever the world looked like after the World Wars, they would still have some semblance of power. Um, that organization ended up falling apart, but their wealth and power had still amassed, so they were able to influence the times and kind of be puppeteers to characters like Big Boss, The Boss, Major Zero that we'll get into shortly. Um, Solid Snake, um, Big Boss's clone, basically has to do a very similar task, but he is doing it against what is known as the Patriots, who are like the American successor to uh, the Philosopher organization. Whereas the Philosophers were very international, the Patriots are very much American, and they're kind of they're kind of presumed to be like the backing force behind the CIA, the U.S. military, the Pentagon, the president. Like they're the puppeteers that kind of keeps American hegemony, you know, enforced across the world. Um, so that's kind of the big picture story. Because as I get into the nitty gritty here, it's going to get a very convoluted, a lot of names, a lot of details. So um, I am going to take a 30 second break to catch my breath before I dive in. <laughs> Do you have anything you want to fill that time with? Yeah, it's I, I love that. I love that premise because it, it activates the, you know, the, the, the paranoid conspiratorial 
part of your brain, obviously, but it also is an interesting commentary on the time it was made. At least the first one was made, and obviously, you know, Kojima lived through the same world we did, so I think his his politics were influenced by that that post nine eleven era you were talking about earlier. But it is an it is an interesting shot across the bow of the idea of the end of history because it's referring to power structures that have an incentive to keep fighting and keep accumulating power kind of regardless of the breakdown of the superpowers themselves. And kind of what we what we see through the larger story is kind of uh, an evolution of power through a time of great political and economic change, the kind of change you think would shake the power structures. And we're kind of told that we did shake the power structures. But part of the subtext of Metal Gear Solid is, is that you know, World World War II didn't end end the world of power before it so much as force it to go into hiding and force it to rename itself. And I think that is that is an interesting overarching story. Yeah, for sure. And uh, even the third Metal Gear Solid game, Snake Eater, um, there are many reasons it's called Snake Eater, but part of that is invoking the snake eating itself and the Ouroboros of time mm-hmm. and how these same kind of battles are repeating themselves even as the times change. The same kind of intrinsic battles stay the same. So. Um, without further ado, uh, here is your synopsis for Metal Gear Solid, the video game series. Prior to the World Wars, a secret cabal of power brokers from the U.S., the soon-to-be Soviet Union, and China combined their wealth and resources to form an organization known as the Philosophers. Though they wielded power for a time, this organization would eventually fall out of sorts following the political realignments of World War II. Most of the amassed wealth eventually found its way to the son of one of the Russian philosophers. This inheritor, Colonel Yevgeny Volgin, would become a Gru colonel and radical, hoping to overthrow Nikita Khrushchev for the Brezhnev faction. Um, So already here, we're just seeing that it's tied into actual events in uh, world history. Um, What was actually happening, though, was uh, he was using this infinite funding he had uh, obtained to design a weapon uh, that could help realign the world order a mobile nuclear tank able to launch an ICDM across the world from anywhere on land. Um, in order to begin his insurrection, Volgan convinces the boss, uh, she, her, because uh, the gender politics in Metal Gear Solid are very important, um, the mother of U.S. Special Forces and World War II hero uh, to defect to his side and join his insurrection. With her comes two U.S. Two US nuclear devices, one which Volgan uses to help cover up his research, and the Cobra unit a legendary special forces squad assembled by the boss herself and who have seemingly unnatural abilities. The year is now 1964. Enter Naked Snake, our protagonist for now. Snake is sent into a remote part of the southern USSR to stop Volgan, defeat the Cobra unit, confront the boss, and take down any such doomsday devices that he may have built. Uh, He has a support team behind him, including Major Zero, Paramedic, Adam, and Eva. Adam and Eva and Snake. Get how this Mm -hmm. is the genesis of the story? (laughs) Get it? Uh, What unfolds is an intricate spy versus spy versus spy versus spy versus spy story with betrayal (laughs) on top of betrayal. Um, And, you know, as they say, a Metal Gear Solid without at least three betrayals is considered a dull affair. (laughs) But Um, of course. Snake discovers the truth eventually. The mission is a cover for several nation states and intelligence agencies trying to claim the philosopher's legacy for themselves. Um, Though Snake would eventually defeat the mobile tank, the Cobra unit, and recover the legacy for the American State Department, um, earning him the title of Big Boss in the process, uh, he has become disillusioned by how he was played like a damn fiddle and retires from the service. Um, The new owners of the legacy, again, the American State Department, are led by Snake's commanding officer, Major Zero, and triple agent Revolver Ocelot, 
uh, who was secretly aiding Snake during the events of Operation Snake Eater. Um, they choose to reform the philosophers into a new American organization known as the Patriots. Um, the Patriots are looking to invest funds in military, genetic, and data information technologies in order, in order to enforce American hegemony and their capitalist viewpoint on the world in the midst of the Cold War. Um, we pick up with uh, Naked Snake about a decade later, who's now the leader of Militaris Sans Frontieres, uh, again, military without borders. Um, he has started recruiting other disillusioned and abused soldiers from across the world, kind of giving them a home free from nation states um, and the wars that they're playing, especially in the midst of the proxy wars uh, between the U.S. and USSR. Um, of course, as fate would have it, Snake would get right up in those proxy wars between the U.S. and the USSR, um, getting involved in a CIA KGB, KGB plot known as Peace Walker, uh, which was about uh, nuclear deterrence. Um, and Snake would later discover in the end that both the U.S. and the USSR um, were kind of being played behind uh, or played, for, played as puppets by the Patriots. And this whole proxy war was really about getting Snake to have his army without borders appear on the national stage. And then they basically said, you either work for the Patriots or we're going to destroy your organization. Um, and this is what I like to say is where Naked Snake becomes Jokerfied. Um, he decides... <laughs> you know what, I am the fucking big boss. We're going to fight the times. We're going to fight the system. And that's kind of when big boss starts leaving the, you know, straight up protect, he starts shifting kind of into an antagonist role in the Metal Gear Solid series. Um, we'll get into that as we go. Um, but Snake would also learn during all of this that somehow his semen had been stolen. Um, it was actually, he had been in a coma following a battle um, and then the Patriots were able to extract his DNA for the purposes of creating perf uh, perfect soldiers from his genetics. Uh, this project would be known as Les Enfants Terribles, the Sons of Big Boss. I mean, that actually translates to the terrible children, but uh, the Sons of Big Boss is a very big theme uh, going forward from here. Um, in 1975, uh, Big Boss's forces were brutally ambushed by the Patriots, and the boss himself was put into a coma for nine years. Um, he would awake in the year 1984, only to find the same ghost from his past still haunting and hunting him. Uh, for the next decade, Big Boss and his forces, now known as Outer Heaven, would fight against Patriot control, eventually rising up as a, rising up fully as a nation state of soldiers bearing that same name, Outer Heaven. Um, Big Boss at this point has uh, found some value in that nuclear tank idea that Volgan was pushing quite a bit ago. Um, and he has decided he is going to start construction on a, his own version of a walking nuclear tank called Metal Gear. Um, thus, the name of the franchise is born. Um, at this point, our story shifts to Solid Stake, a rookie for a military unit called Foxhound. And he sent into this outer heaven to defeat Big Boss and Metal Gear. Um, Snake accomplishes both of these goals, but in the end, he learns that Big Boss somehow survived the events um, and so on and so forth. Um, a couple of years later, um, we find out basically the same thing's happening again. Big Boss has reemerged. Uh, Metal Gear is once again in play. And once again, Solid Snake is sent in to defeat his uh, father. Um, this time, he actually does kill Big Boss, but not before learning that Big Boss is his father in a big Vader-Luke moment for our Metal Gear series. Um, that takes us into uh, Metal Gear Solid 1, 1998. Um, at this point, the story is set in 2005, and this is six years after Snake defeated Big Boss. 
Um, in the remote island of Shadow Moses on Alaska's Fox Archipelago, a group of terrorists led by Liquid Snake and Revolver Ocelot, remember him, have taken other have taken over a nuclear waste facility and threatened nuclear assault unless their demands are met. Their demands are money and the remains of Big Boss. Um, a retired Solid Snake is sent in to discover the truth behind what's going on, but much like his father before him, he turns out to be a pawn in a much more shadowy story. Uh, Snake learns that Liquid is in fact his twin brother, another son of Big Boss, um, but not a son in a traditional way. Um, they're genetically modified clones as uh, patterned after that perfect soldier. Uh, Snake further learns that Liquid's nuclear threat is a new Metal Gear called Rex, secretly designed by the military, funded by the Patriots, of course, and Liquid had stolen the facility also with the goal of stealing Metal Gear. Um, Snake would win out the day as he usually would, um, and his victory would blow off the government cover of the secret Metal Gear project, which puts Snake in the crosshairs of the Patriots. Um, one of the survivors of this event was also Ocelot, um, who would escape uh, Shadow Moses with uh, test data for Metal Gear, uh, allowing him to build more in the future. And it's revealed that the current president was actually kind of behind the events of Shadow Moses. That president, you guessed it, another son of Big <laughs> Boss, uh, this one being Solid as Snake, but under the cover name of President George Sears. Um, Solid Snake, um, though he had drawn the ire of the Patriots, was now a national hero, um, having stopped a terrorist insurrection and also revealing the illegal government uh, nuclear program. Um, Solid Snake would dedicate himself now to uh, stopping the proliferation of Metal Gear, along with his buddy Hal Emmerich, also known as Atacon. Um So they would come across the fact that the Marines had secretly developed a new uh, Metal Gear model uh, titled Metal Gear Ray. Um, and Snake tries to sneak into their uh, facility, or a tanker in this case, um, to take pictures and again blow the cover off another new Metal Gear story. Um, it turns out that this was a wholly staged event to catch Snake in the process with Metal Gear and kind of try to implicate them as Snake having stolen this new Metal Gear Ray model. Um, fast forward two years, and uh, Solid Snake would reemerge again. Uh, this time he has a new ally with him called Raiden, and I'm skipping a lot when I'm just mentioning his name and not telling you who he is. Um, and they would uncover, uh, through the process of trying to reacquire Metal Gear Ray and seeing what happened with Revolver Ocelot, uh, discover the Patriots, that they're behind pulling the strings, um, but not the Patriots as people um, who existed you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. The Patriots are actually four massive AIs, which processed all the data in the world. Public, private, financial, military, medical. Uh, these I and these AIs uh, claim not to uh, control content, but create context as a way to impose full control over all institutions and data that move between them. Um, this is kind of a dystopian vision of the information age that varies from a lot of the ones we're familiar with, where um, we kind of think of 1984 and full information control, whereas Metal Gear Solid 2 is more like there's a whole shitload of garbage information and we're going to funnel you towards specific information um, that will match your worldview or help us hold up this infrastructure we built. Um, so following the events of this, um, we find out that Snake has begun physically deteriorating and aging at an advanced rate. Um, it turns out he has Terminator DNA, um, not the Arnold Schwarzenegger kind, but the kind that is meant to die off um, before he le leads a full life. Uh, the idea being that if you're cloning the greatest soldier of all time, you don't want, you know, a hundred big bosses running around 50 years down the road, like giving you hell because one of them did plenty of that. 
Um, so in kind of Snake's last mission, uh, he's now referred to as Old Snake. Um, him, Raiden, and basically all the buddies you've met through all the games up until this point come together and are able to take down the Patriot system. Um, there's a lot of weddings. Snake almost tries to kill himself at the end, um, but then Big Boss magically reappears. There's a I'm just going to stop there. We'll just say that <laughs> the reign of the philosophers and the patriots come to an end. And in the process, uh, Solid Snake, uh, you know, deals with the sins of the father, a big boss, and kind of puts a cap on the whole story there. Whew, I'm done. Well done, sir. Applause, applause. Yeah, no, that's great. And uh, obviously, yeah, that takes place you, you laid it out well in linear linear fashion obviously the games jump around as you said there was a strong setup for the backstory in the first couple of just metal gear games which kind of became only more only got kind of got kind of retroactively got attention after the, the solid part of the franchise took off so well and that yeah as again we'll get into a little later when we're talking about the themes metal gear solid 2 kind of takes a hard a hard uh, right turn in terms of where the plot goes even though it all comes together uh, at the end and then a lot of the more specifics about the the naked snake backstory and his his missions in Russia are laid out in the third game in Snake Eater, and then yeah the fourth game is where kind of a in the present day a, a, a lot of it ramps up going forward in, in four and five. But as you can just just tell from from Menu's outline that uh, yeah this was moving into territory that a lot of video games hadn't covered and a lot of territory that felt more like what movies and novels cover. There's the the kind of paranoid cyberpunk era. The kind of neuromancer, Blade Runner, early 80s kind of feel that's creeping in here. A lot of spy fiction, James Bond, but also like John le Carré and, and real world, uh, uh, you know, Cold War events that you were talking about. Um, there's the the sense of kind of forever wars and perpetual soldiers and yeah, the idea of these institutions. There's just a, a lot of different uh, genres coming together. Like Revolver Ocelot is where like a lot of the these spy themes come together because he's always betraying everyone. But he's also got like the guns and it's almost like he's a Western gunslinger. So Kojima is, is definitely emptying the bag in terms of you know what's what's happening in this story, which is great. It's exhilarating, but it can also be very confusing. Uh, so that hel- it helps to lay out the plot uh, very very directly like that. Yeah, um, and I think one thing that uh, Kojima and his team has said before is um, they are making video games. So in the end, they're going to serve the game they're making in that story. Um, this the overall canon of the entire saga um, is pretty you know. The bigger picture holds together, but the details, you know, may fall apart. But um, he's clear he wants to make the the game he's working on right now and those themes and that story work and not worry too much about is this the perfect continuity or canon or um, and sometimes that works well. Sometimes it's a little clumsy or clunky or leads him down the wrong path. But um, I, I do think it's something that's definitely not necessarily story first in terms of a big overarching canon. kind of. Thing. Yeah, no, I agree. It's more... More the kind of, I mean, the reason people want specific details and, and want some people want him to be more specific is because the, the feeling it engenders in you is so strong that you want catharsis and you want to make full sense of the emotions that arises in you. Because even when, you know, uh, uh, specific continuity is off or just, you know, like you're saying, an individual game has its own specific logic more than it does cater to the needs of the franchise, there are still clear themes in common and there's still, I think, a, a clear powerful buildup as you as you discover what, what they're driving at. So you've covered really well what, what happens in Metal Gear Solid, but what would you say Metal Gear Solid is, is about? What are the big themes? Um, I think we first need to start with militarization, war. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very specifically anti-imperialist. 
um, which, you know, is not uncommon, but I think it's unique in the, or not unique, but it's definitely uh, more complex in that it's not only ta- tackling American imperialism, but it's also t- talking about Japanese imperialism, uh, both uh, leading up to and including World War II and the fallout of what happened after that, because, you know, Japan had to disarm, you know, to be kind of allowed back into the community of nations. Um, there was, you know, there's a lot going on when you're the only country that ever has been nuked by another sure. country, um, had two cities completely incinerated. Um, so that's, I would say, is a very big part of it. And I think we'll talk about a little bit later is that the gameplay of Metal Gear Solid is meant to inform that, that everywhere where you cannot kill someone is generally cre- creates a way that's a better experience for you. You get more rewards. Um, he really tries to find a way to make this anti-war statement not just be a story level thing, but then the gameplay is, oh yeah, it's so fun to kill and shoot people because I have these machine guns and rocket sure. launchers. Um, but also because this is a story that was kind of created in the 90s, um, coming out of the Cold War, um, we were still kind of in that anti-nuclear messaging phase of a lot of pop culture, like you know, Under Siege and all those movies. There's always a terrorist trying to steal some nuclear material from somewhere and threaten everyone with a nuclear bomb. Um, the issue of MUF, um, materials unaccounted for, um, as, you know, the USSR dissolved and all um, their weapons facilities, you know, now fell outside of Russian borders, like who had control of what, you know, materials, were they being properly disposed of because, um, you know, how to properly handle and dispose nuclear materials. I don't even know if we, we have a stronger sense of it now, but we're still learning about it because mm-hmm. this whole technology is still relatively new to our species. Um, so I think... Anti-nuclear messaging is a big part, but I think that also fits into the general anti-imperialism uh, themes. But I think Kojima is very big on making sure nukes are fr- uh, specifically addressed in all of his war messaging. Um, and then also with that, uh, the Revolution of Military Affairs, or RMA. Um, this is kind of what started around Desert Storm and kind of the build-up to that and kind of how military affairs have kind of been conducted afterwards. It's become a much more digital process, more computers, the media is involved in the process. Um, Basically, for obvious reasons, Vietnam changed the way um, America wanted its wars to be portrayed, especially when they were going overseas. And, you know, for whatever reason, good or bad, um, they did not want what happened in Vietnam to be the coverage that they had going forward. So Desert Storm is where you start seeing CNN on the ground with their night vision covering wars. We see all the computers. We see that a lot of this is done by computers and people dropping bombs remotely and less, you know, boots on the ground kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, trying to avoid guerrilla warfare and kind of the wars that we had not done so well in the past. So um, that's, I think, another big part of this. And I think the big thing here is that this is so distinct from everything else happening in video games, both back in 1998, but more so in 2020. Um, I want to like highlight like the Call of Duty series, which you know a lot of people like and they think it's a well-designed, well-realized game. But in those games, they take literal U.S. war crimes and say the Russians did it. Um, I think it was what the Highway to Hell or whatever it was in Iraq. Um, a Call of Duty game within the last couple of years basically blamed that on the Russians, where that was completely uh, U.S. military action. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, uh, one of the most hailed games last year, uh, Ghost of Tsushima, uh, which is kind of sent in uh, Samurai Japan and talks about the Mongolian invasion of Japan. Um, it's a very violent game, but it really doesn't say anything about its violence or it says 
it kind of says the same stuff that like something like the walking dead does like or even like game of thrones when it's not at its best it's like mm-hmm. well i kind of feel sad about it but i had to do it there was no real you know the death of the soul inside or any you know there's no real grappling with it on a character level or in terms of a thematic or story level so um it was a beautiful game i spent 100 hours with it it's fun it's mechanically sound but I felt nothing like the story was just going through the motions. Like, I feel like you can give this to an 18 year old inspiring screenwriter and they would pitch pretty much the same story. And that's maybe insulting the 18 year old. Um, And I don't want to make fun of the writers of the game, but um, you start comparing that to a Metal Gear Solid game. And I'm going to highlight Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker. Um, It might be one that fewer people have played, but big boss in that game is conceptualized and rendered as basically a Che Guevara type and a, it's a positive portrayal of both Big Boss and Che. Um, the bad guys in Metal Gear Solid uh, Peace Walker are the CIA. Like, without a doubt, that is clear-cut. The CIA is kind of behind it. And then we find out later that the Patriots are behind the CIA. Um, some people think those kind of storylines, you know, take blame away from the CIA, whereas I'm like more like the CIA. This is inherently what they are and how they would be used for. Um, so when you compare something that has... I wouldn't call it radical politics. I don't think Kojima is a radical, but he's definitely somewhere in that pacifist, very strongly anti-imperialist range of war. So I think that is maybe the core initial theme um, that I'd want to highlight. I think you're totally right when you compare it to other big video game releases in this regard, because like I was saying earlier, it strikes me that the themes of the franchise and the way the franchise conceptualizes the player's role in this is something I associate more with indie games and with more overtly experimental games and even specifically like shorter games. Like you think of a game like Braid, uh, which, you know, it has the themes of, of the nuclear bomb in it and is very much about questioning your own actions and your own role in things. And, you know, you know, Braid was, was popular, but it's, it's, it doesn't, you wouldn't even think to compare it to Call of Duty because it's not even functioning in the same ballpark. Whereas Metal Gear Solid, where of course the gameplay is still very different from something like Call of Duty, it is playing in that same sandbox. And I think that's what makes it really interesting is that it's a popular game franchise with action elements and easily recognizable characters and even catchphrases. But its attitude towards what's happening is is completely different. And yeah, as as, as you were saying, I think a lot of this has to do with uh, kind of hangover from Cold War logic. And I think what's interesting is that that both defines how the game is made, but that's also kind of what the games are about. And you, I think you have other video games that just try to turn their back on that stuff or just, yeah, unthinkingly carry the water for the worst institutions possible. So it's a, stri- it's a striking contrast. Yeah, and you mentioned the digital project itself that these games, you know, kind of in- engage you with there. Mm-hmm. Um One thing I was uh, thinking about is uh, it's not just that it has these anti-imperialist themes or anti-war themes, but they confront you, the player, as you engage in the killing. Um, Very notably in uh, Metal Gear Solid 1, um, when Solid Snake is facing down Liquid Snake, um, the camera turns so you are in Solid Snake's eyes and Liquid is talking directly to you and tells you, you enjoy the killing you've done on this mission, right? Like you pulling the trigger, you enjoy that. And he's not talking to Solid Snake. I mean, he is, but he's really talking to the player. You enjoyed killing all these people. Um, when you get to Metal Gear Solid 2 and the AI that's been commanding you the whole time starts going nuts, it starts literally telling you, uh, you've been playing this game for a while. Shouldn't you take a break? Game over, right? And, you know, you should stop right here. Um, it's never not um, 
putting you out of the fact that you are a gamer um, or you are playing a game, you are playing a simulation, and are you enjoying it? Are you getting something out of this violence? Um, it's it's a very interesting. It's very fourth wall breaking, but not fourth wall breaking in terms of like Deadpool looking at the camera is like sure. so that happened. Um, it's very much like whatever is happening on screen, you are, you know, responsible, you should be, you know, working through that pathos, you know, just as much as the characters in the story are. Um, and Metal Gear Solid 2 is often hailed as like the first postmodern game. Mm -hmm. um, just to um, kind of give a broad summary without spoiling it. Um, it turns out that the whole back half of the game, you are not Solid Snake, you are Raiden, um, who is just a, another random character brought in. Um, he's got none of the coolness of Solid Snake. Um, and he's brought in to uh, stop a terrorist situation, just like every other game. And it turns out that basically the whole thing is a simulation. It's the Patriots testing whether if at any point they need to give birth to a new Solid Snake character to defeat some kind of other big boss character, they can basically engineer that story, whether to actually take down people or just to create that narrative for consumption by the world, by American culture. So um, it's very much challenging. Did the events really happen? Um, are they simulated? Is what Raiden is experiencing something that he's physically experiencing? Or is he like, you know, have a VR headset somewhere? Um, and I, I think it's by far the most uh, groundbreaking postmodern, at least for an, a time, you know, eventually I'm sure it's been surpassed. But um, I think the big part here is that Kojima is directly challenging what video games are. Um, video games are, to some level, always some kind of power fantasy. They're always putting a sword or a gun in your hand or giving you the ability to run fast and jump far and basically do, you know, kind of things that are kind of empowering or traditionally associated with things that heroes do or gods do, something like that. And he's directly challenging the idea that video games should be a power fantasy or that they are a power fantasy. Um, Solid Snake and Naked Snake both end up being pawns in most of their missions. Uh, in Metal Gear Solid, you find out that Solid Snake wasn't really meant to kill everyone, you know, with his guns and his weapons. They just basically injected him with the disease and was hoping he would wipe out um, <laughs> everything. Uh, Naked Snake, in his initial mission, he was always supposed to defeat the people he defeated. The whole point was the boss and the Cobra unit was set up to lose to him so that, you know, various other international affairs could be rectified with the CIA and KGB. So um, the concept of challenging that power fantasy is very important to metal gear yeah that's i i love what you're saying about uh metal gear solid 2 is the the first postmodern game in that regard because you have the kind of structure which is obviously reductive to a certain extent of the you know the the classical form of a medium is imitating a past medium like you know you know movies are starting out and it's like i don't we don't really know what this is we'll just do we'll do magic tricks with it and we'll just do basically plays except we're pointing a camera at people and it's not it's you know still good stuff but it's not distinct to the medium and then a modernist movement in a form is here's what makes poetry slash sculpture slash movies unique here's what it can do that that no other form can do this is what makes it unique and then a postmodern movement is saying but should we though should should <laughs> should we be doing those things just because we can and start w willing to actively break the mechanisms the unique mechanisms that modernism has discovered so like you know a, a modernist video game might be something in the Final Fantasy vein that, that, that takes the medium forward in a way that's unique to video games and is very kind of earnest. I mean, like, you know, the Final Fantasy games are kind of po-faced in a way I enjoy, but like they're very like, this, this is our story and we we think it's very, very good. Whereas the Metal Gear Solid as it goes along starts poking fun at the concept of you wanting to play a game like that. 
which, you know, I get why that's, you know, can be dissatisfying. And I think there are certainly games and stories that work like that that are just kind of lazy or just trying to trying to get out of telling a story. But I think what makes Metal Gear Solid work is that it's really interested in what the technology is doing to you and how how what the technology is doing to you reflects what it's doing to everyone. Because there's those, those dual movements we've been saying of the militarization and the digitalization. Those go hand in hand. But, you know, the militarization is something that's happening to the world and the digitalization is something that's happening to you. And I think bet- between those first couple games, I think we we get a really strong sense of it. There's that, that great passage in the second game that everyone likes, likes to quote that gets at what we were talking about earlier, the kind of brave new world more than 1984 sense. If they're not really controlling all information, just, you know, they're, they're streamlining the junk to suit them. In the current, the quote is, in the current digitized world, trivial information is accumulating every second, preserved in all its triteness, never fading, always accessible. Rumors about petty issues, misinterpretations, slander, all this junk data preserved in an unfiltered state, growing at an alarming rate, will only slow down social progress, reduce the rate of evolution. The digital society furthers human flaws and selectively rewards developments of half-truths. No one is invalidated, but nobody is right. Not even natural selection can take place here. The world is being engulfed in truth, in quotes, and this is the way the world ends. Which is great, you know. I, I, you know, I think that's, it's, it takes an avant-garde mechanism to get there, but I think that's, that's ch- chillingly accurate stuff in a lot of ways in how media yeah. has evolved since. Yeah, you can you look at, you know, the current age of digital media, you know, Twitter, deep fakes, um, fake news, um, the Facebook hives, you know, everyone's mm-hmm. kind of processing. It's, it's an overabundance of information, which is not usually how that kind of information control is usually depicted. Um, but it's also an abundance to the point where it can render a populace inert. Um, you're unable to do changes because everyone lives in their own information bubbles. Um, it's a very interesting concept. I wouldn't say like uh, Kojima's, you know, MGS2 prescriptions all ended up coming true, but enough sure, of it sure. hit a truth that um, not a lot of media that was almost trying to do some of the same stuff, um, you know, it kind of missed more, or MGS2 hit a little closer to home than I think some of the other stuff trying to get at the same themes. That's a good point. I think there's naturally, just because of changes in technology, the focus on large physical ground-based machines shooting nukes like that you know that's not something we typically spend much time talking about uh in in 2021 in the same way that like i think a lot of you know late 90s early aughts movies and stories about the internet didn't quite get right what was going to be the scary part of it like i mean there's this um movie demon lover that came out in the early aughts like this this french like identity thriller about like uh media companies fighting over for uh control of internet porn and it's it's forward looking in a lot of ways, but it's it's built on the idea that like owning a random, like uh you know, uh, password protected club would make you a lot of money as a company, which is kind of just ludicrous looking back on it now. But I think I think what I, what has aged well is that 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 sense of 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 media deluge and the sense that the powerful people don't that they can do it passively in that environment, and that you will kind of you will be complicit in your own brainwashing, which is what happens to Raiden in that game. And as you begin to realize, especially as you say, the, the AI starts breaking down, the, the kernel or whatever it is starts breaking down, you realize, oh, that's happened to me as playing this game. And that's just, that's like you're saying, the, the integration of the style and the audience experience is so great. Yeah. Um, and then just the last thing I want to hit before we get to what I'm really excited to talk about. Sure. Um, I do want to talk about um, just some of the game specifics and how well integrated systems and boss fights are. Um, the games are designed 
kind of differently from how, let's say, a Mario or Zelda are. They're very specifically designing the world and environment and working backwards, whereas mm -hmm. often you render characters, design characters, and then build the world outward. And what happens when, you know, this character does something or this character knocks against a wall versus what happens when a wall is knocked against or something like that. Um, so there's, it's a little, you know, outside in, inside out, however you want to talk about it. But uh, one thing the games do really well is they make sure the systems are always in play. And I think Metal Gear Solid 3 is probably the best example of this. Um, there's, uh, you have life, you have health, just like any other video game, but you also have stamina, um, which you have to replenish by healing yourself, by eating food, by hunting. Um, and not only do you have stamina, stamina uh, that you know has varying levels, but every single enemy soldier, every single enemy boss, all of them have um, a stamina meter. So um, all the systems in play for you in terms of eating and healing yourself are equally in play for all the bosses. Um, I like to think of uh, one of the boss battles in Metal Gear Solid 3 is the fear. Um, and he has stealth camo. Um, but to use that stealth camo, it sucks up a lot of his stamina. And so during the battle, he has to eat food that's found in the arena you're fighting him. But you, you can throw poison food, you can throw rotten food, because if you collect food and you don't eat it for a while, it goes rotten. You can throw that out there, he will eat that, and that will lower his stamina more until you can defeat him. Um, likewise, the end is a, probably one of the most famous video game battles across the board. It's a sniper battle, it's across three maps, um, but he's using a non-lethal rifle. Um, it, it uses tranquilizer rounds. So if he gets you down to zero stamina, he doesn't actually kill you. He just knocks you out. They throw you in jail like seven maps back and you basically have to redo everything. Um, it's taking all of that stuff um, as part of the game mechanics, even the stuff like just saving the game. It's part of recording mission data. Like everything is kind of cohesive into the overall digital experience that they're getting at. I love what, yeah, that, that approach taken to boss battles because it again gets at something I think is unique about the franchise, especially in retrospect, in that, you know, the, the, the boss fight is something that is, I think, one of those features that is unique to video games, but it's also something that can feel kind of chintzy or cheap or just, you know, it just makes you think of bum, 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 and Mario and it's like, oh, there's a guy with a pumpkin head who's swinging around on a chain and this is the end of the level. And if you're making a more serious, nuanced game series that is, you know, involving the player's expectations and tying into things in the real world, you know, it, it can seem, it could kind of break that to then have the music suddenly change and you're standing in a room with the one tough guy, you know, that, 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 that it, it makes you more in tune with a structure that they're trying to bury. So I think one of the great features of Metal Gear Solid is how much attention is focused to these boss fights and how, how unique they are, how well woven into the environment, like you're saying, starting with the environment and how they, they just, yeah, they, like I remember people talking about the fight with the end long before I ever did it myself. They just become the, these kind of legendary, they, they, they get talked about in the way that like, you know, specific uh, Kung Fu fights get talked about in movies. And I think that, that's just a great elevation of what could potentially be potentially would be one of the weakest parts of your franchise ends up being one of the most memorable. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think that's definitely one of the legacies of the Metal Gear Solid series is their great boss fights. Um, it's kind of lessened in maybe the latter half of the game series or just not been as um, 
prominent because especially the first Metal Gear and the third Metal Gear, um, they the first Metal Gear kind of laid down that, oh shit, we're going to put a lot of interest into these boss fights. And then Metal Gear Solid 3, I think, is maybe the pinnacle of it where um, all the way up until your final fight against, you know, Naked Snake versus the boss, where basically every system, eating, camouflage, all the weapons you have, uh, hand-to-hand combat, they're all in play. Um, not a, you know, and that's a big thing about these games. Um, it's a concept called like multiple realizability. There's no one way to beat, you know, these bosses. Um, you think of the traditional Zelda format where you go into a dungeon, you get a weapon and you use that weapon to defeat the boss of that dungeon. And whether you use that weapon again, um, you know, varies to varying amounts. You'll use your bow and arrow again, but sometimes you'll get a wand that only applies to one dungeon and you never equip it again. So um, this way is like, if you want to, you know, have a sniper battle with the end, have a sniper battle with the end. But if you want to sneak around him and hold him up at gunpoint so you can tell him to strip naked and steal his camo, you can do that as well. You can also go into your PlayStation 2 date time settings and (laughs) change it to a week. And the end, who is an old man, will die um, during that uh, one week uh, change of uh, date time from the last save file to the current save file. So um, again, it's just very creative ways, but it makes every experience playing the game your own. It's not just like everyone had the same experience playing Metal Gear Solid. Um, they find very ways to make it, um, you can realize the story in very unique ways. I'm a very pacifist guy. Um, I like don't try to kill anyone. Um, I've beaten every game without killing anyone, but I've also seen YouTube plays where somebody will just take off their shirt, equip a shotgun, and just run through every map and just blow everyone apart. Um, and I think that it's pretty cool that you can do that in a game. Yeah, that's great. That's a great point. And yeah, I love that, that that multiple options and the cleverness of it. I mean, you know, the problem with, the potential problem with a more kind of postmodern approach like this is that you're, you can get too clever for your own good. And certainly Kojima has been accused of that by multiple people in, in multiple respects. So, you know, struggling to come up with a potential flaw for the franchise we can talk about. One, peop- one that people have mentioned I know is, is the sense of humor, that sometimes people think it's it's jarring or it throws off the tone that he'll throw in, you know, characters talking about bodily functions or or, or even some of the fourth wall jokes. Some people don't like it because it, it saps the, the tension of what's happening. Do you think that's a, a reasonable critique or is that kind of people taking themselves a little too seriously? Um. I think I think I think I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's definitely okay. reasonable because I can definitely see, and even myself, I can occasionally lose immersion just by like that was really clunky, um, or it just like we were in such a tense moment, and then all of a sudden, you know, someone pissed themselves, and you know, to some level that can work. I do think you know some of the excrement jokes or moments <laughs> actually work, or yeah, sure, do do a little bit of character work, you know, something like that. But um, I do agree. Um, I, uh, you mentioned earlier that anime is a big influence in general for right. this. And I think some of that whiplash tone might a little bit be, um, I don't want to call it cultural because I'm not knowledgeable enough to speak to that, but um, there's kind of a different sense. And I think that'll also apply when you talk about Kojima's male gaze, especially from a di- directorial sense, because he writes yeah, some, sure. like, you know, pretty solid women characters, not across the board, but he does write some really well, but he still can't get out of the way of like zooming in on boobs and ass. And if you want to try, you can, it does work into that whole power fantasy because often, you know, he allows you to look at someone's ass, but you don't actually get the girl or, you know, there's there's reasons that he you can kind of justify it within the broader themes. But, um, yeah, I do agree with you that um, the humor, because it's so intricately detailed that when it does decide to take one of those big leaps or just have a really weird joke in there, um, 
it does kind of not land. And I do also want to point out that these are translated and localized from Japanese. Right. So there is always something lost. I think a common thing for Metal Gear Solid 4 is a character named Naomi says, Snake, if you don't want to be a prisoner to fate, then go face your destiny. And it's like, wait, what? Uh, and then you read the Japanese as like, if you don't want to, you know, be a prisoner to fate, confront it and defeat. Like, it kind of makes a little more sense. They phrase it in a way that isn't like the, you know, if not a, then a, you know, kind of logical phrasing. So um, I do think that's good. But I'm also someone who has very much a rosy colored view of generally Metal Gear Solid and its content. So um, I do think that's, you know, a fair criticism. I think some of it is cultural translation, like you say. And I think also it's just, you know, when you are putting intellectual material and really visceral material together like that, sometimes just the seams show like you're, you know, you you want to have a commentary about a thing, but also do the thing. And like, that's, you know, I think, I don't think that's like contradictory or hypocritical. I think that's the nature of trying to make great art. But I, I think along the way you can create like odd little juxtapositions. And yeah, I don't even think that's, that's necessarily a negative. I just think that that kind of, that's where you see most clearly, I think the, the combination of things that, that, that they're trying to do. For sure. But uh, now, now this is where I'm really excited to uh, yes. talk to you, Emmett, because <laughs> um, we've been talking almost an hour about Metal Gear Solid, but this is not a cast podcast about mm-hmm. A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, and I kind of want to talk about why Metal Gear would be worthwhile for A Song of Ice and uh, Fire fans to either get into, to revisit, or at the very least, like, subscribe to my podcast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Take us away. And I think I want to start with um, the auteurs behind both of these worlds. Um, I'm going to compare Hideo Kojima and George R.R. R. Martin a little bit. I do want to make clear that Hideo Kojima has a team of developers, writers, art directors sure. behind him. And it's it's kind of like movies where directors get a lot of work, but a lot of times directors work with the same screenwriters, directors of photography. Um, so there's a team behind that makes the magic happen. But uh, I think, you know, they both have very distinct voices, like what... The, what they want to play with thematically in terms of character, like they don't shy away from. They, um, you understand that they come into this with a specific voice. Um, they're both speaking to war themes, specifically uh, U.S. imperialism. Um, you know, with uh, Martin, we see a lot of it with Vietnam because that was a very formative moment for him growing up. Um, you know, you guys talk often about how both he was clearly, a, you know, an objector to the war, but also understands the military as a concept, what was happening, like the way he depicts military affairs in Game of Thrones and all the other books. Um, clearly, there's a level of knowledge, understanding there that isn't just this is a hippie who's writing about how he imagines war is like. Right, right. Um, and another thing is, I think they both are very much driven by their influences. I think Martin definitely is a little subtler with how his influences come through in A Song of Ice and Fire, whereas Kojima's like, this is going to be straight from Die Hard right, um, sure. a lot of times. Um, but you can see that their entire wealth of their cultural influences, whether it's uh, spiritual and religious um, to, you know, Norse mythology, Marvel comics, anime, manga, um, big blockbuster movies, they all kind of find their ways into uh, their works, whether to, you know, kind of reinforce themes that are similar to those or take them and kind of turn them on their head. Um, you know, an example I like to use is uh, Metal Gear Solid Five is very much about the concept of language and language as imperialism and English as an imperialist language. Um, so the big uh, references he uses for Metal Gear Solid Five are Moby Dick, 
1984, Heart of Darkness, A Lord of the Flies, basically four of the biggest touchstones of English literature to kind of make his point. So um, that's kind of how it's not just references, but it's very important to the thematic because, you know, Heart of Darkness, you know, is very similar to a lot of Metal Gear Solid games where you're, you know, going deeper into the jungle to find a darker truth about what's really going on. Um, you know, it's kind of, kind of stuff like that. So, and I also think they're both very interested in writing women characters. Um, I think, again, I'd give Martin a little bit of a nod here. He doesn't have to have a directorial gaze that we critique, but I also think he's also, he addresses uh, women in the realm of femininity in a way that uh, Kojima isn't because all of his movies are very martial and all his characters are very martial. Um, they're part of the military or some kind of, you know, state intelligence agency of some sort. Um, you don't really have an analog to someone like uh, Sansa Stark or Marjorie Tyrell, but you might have something closer to someone like Brienne or Arya. Um, child soldiers are a key theme to uh, both the uh, series, I would say. Um, not necessarily, but consensual child soldiers. You can't even really consent when you're a child, but right. I guess uh, so. you kind of get what I mean. And I think they both, you know, have their failures in writing women as well. I don't think, you know, they're unimpeachable or unassailable on that front. Yeah, I, I like what you were saying about uh, the 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 strong nature of their influences and in a way that, you know, I think a lot of uh, attempts to frame modern pop culture as our mythology are kind of bankrupt because they, they just take mythology to mean stories we all know instead of something very specific to kind of cultural preservance and storytelling as a way of history. And I don't think Kojima or George R. R. Martin are doing that either. But I think they get closer to what pop culture mythology would actually look like. And I think in their in their combination of really ancient religious influences, like you were talking about the clear kind of uh, genesis of man stuff going on with Metal Gear Solid. And I think uh, George is also concerned with kind of uh, origins and obsessed with where we come from and obsessed with backstory and history. But yeah, you can also see how much how much they both love comics and visual medium and they both they both are in love with how i think comics and movies took mythology and made them faster and more intense and i think they're just like yes that's how that's how i that's how beowulf and achilles comes to life and they're actually moving and their their love of that and their desire to kind of recreate that i think is is something they have in common that they they both you know that they they want to see michelangelo's david on the battlefield i think is something they both have in common yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, I like how they have kind of different angles. Um, you know, A Song of Ice and Fire, you know, kind of the story is that Martin wanted to write something unfilmable in, you know, its scope and its right. scale. And then Kojima's like, no one's letting me make movies, so I'm going to make a video game that is a movie. So it's kind of like what they're doing is almost in relation to uh, cinema um, as a mode of medium. And, you know, we talked a little bit of, about how Kojima really tackles the mode of video gaming of creating a video game we talk about the stuff he does with controllers with consoles with memory cards we've kind of gone over that but i think martin does that too um you know he plays with all the tools in his toolbox as a writer and i don't just mean imagery and foreshadowing and all that stuff but chapter titling prologues epilogues where they go um even things like releasing sample chapters or you know kind of releasing bits of information outside of the traditional canon of the song of ice and fire novels like basically every every mode of storytelling storytelling or literature is kind of on the table in terms of you know what he wants to communicate um how he does it um i i'm one of those maybe unpopular people who like that the title chap uh some of the chapter titles change in A Song of Ice and Fire. I like kind of the idea of what he's doing. I think some work better than others, but, you know, 
I love getting to Beyond One in A Dance with Dragons after all that. Like that, you know, it's just a chapter title work for me. Um, so I think using all the tools in their toolbox is also something that's very, very similar to, uh, you know, these two auteurs, so to speak. I agree. There's creating drama in the space between you and the text instead of just between the characters. Because, yeah, like the the moment of shifting between chapter titles between Reek and the other ones to Theon in Dance, like no one knows about that in universe. Theon doesn't know that that happened. We're the only ones that know that that happened. And that revelation is for us, and it colors how we interpret the chapter. But even beginning Dance with Dragons, when George is titling Theon's chapters Reek, like that is very specifically a gauntlet laid out for the audience, because we know who Reek was. We remember these guys from Clash of Kings. So it, it completely confuses us, and then we realize whose chapter this is, that this is Theon, and that I'll never forget my skin crawling when I realized who this was, that, that, oh, and he starts talking about, I think, like, the, the girl, Kyra, that he was sleeping with in Clash of Kings. He starts talking about escaping with her, and I'm like, oh, this is Theon. And, like, that, that power wouldn't exist if he'd just called the chapter Theon, if he'd used the invisible style, so to speak. But he's, he's very deliberately calling attention to this change and how it will affect the audience. And I think, yeah, you can see Kojima working in that, that same vein, which I think, um, I think is great. Yeah, I think people. I think I think everyone, even if they're not into that kind of story generally, has some kind of like meta story that they like, some kind of fourth wall breaking thing that really did work for them. And I think that those are great examples of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think it was later for me. I think it was when we got to the italicized "I was Ironborn" or something similar in that sure. week one chapter. That's when it finally hit. I'm like, oh, oh, because they. Because even I hadn't really thought of Stark's Ward. Like, it took me a second for that to register because I just don't think Stark's Ward is... Ward is not just a word I know. I know, like, Robin Robin is Batman's Ward, but I don't really hear that word. So when people say Stark's Ward, that's not something that immediately... <laughs> I got gotcha. you. Know, that's not a light bulb. So, but I was Iron... There's only one character where that would really matter, you know, kind of at that point, minus Asha a little bit. But, um, yeah, so... Um, we've talked a little bit about these auteurs, but I also think it's worth talking about how the stories themselves are similar beyond just um, the broader themes of war and imperialism, because um, they both kind of, you know, ran parallel in culture. Uh, Metal Gear, the first game was 1987, but like the Metal Gear Solid series started in 1998, uh, two years after the release of the Game of Thrones. Uh, Metal Gear Solid kind of wrapped up around 2015, A Song of Ice and Fire we'll know when it wraps up maybe sometime eventually <laughs> um but you can kind of see that um not only are they playing with similar themes but you can see the shifting of themes hmm. and focus over that time span um we've talked a lot about the you know uh issues of the 90s nuclear war climate change the legacies of vietnam and Hir hiroshima and desert storm uh, a little bit earlier but you know we talked also that 9 11 happened and that kind of changed everything it ended the end of history and then we shift into a new political world with uh, the war on terror, the wars in the Middle East, the Bush presidency, um, and then, you know, the occupation of Iraq. Um, we have the proliferation of private military companies, uh, mercenary forces like Blackwater, which, you know, hor horrific stuff. And then also like the revival of a religious conservative movement. So there's a lot that changed from 2001 through, you know, the rest of the Bush presidency that's still reaping its, uh, you know, whatever rewards or punishments now. Um, but we see both authors kind of try to capture that in their later works or their post 9-11 works. Um, you know, I 
whether intentional or not, uh, Marine is always going to invoke Iraq to me, like something you thought you could get in, do what you needed to do, and then move on your way. Sure. Um, but, you know, it's definitely about the politics of occupation, about being there longer than you had to, and how do you leave something, and can you leave something in a state that's even good? Um, you know, that's something that Game of Thrones should properly be criticized for, because Danny just left Marine, and they left a sellsword in charge, and that's definitely not a satisfying answer. And I'm not saying that George is trying to be prescriptive with his political analysis, but, you know, it doesn't really satisfy whatever narrative tension or thematic tension they were kind of building up with Marine. Um, I also look at the Sparrows as commenting on, um, you know, the religious re revival. And again, yeah, George was writing this, you know, probably even prior to the release of A Storm of Swords, he might have had some of these chapters figured out. Um, I guess the five-year gap might kind of change that. But um, whether he's directly commenting on it, it's hard not to see the parallels between the Sparrow movement and how the religious right have kind of recaptured significant political power. It kind of started around 96, 97 with the launch of conservative radio and News Corp kind of grabbing yep. a lot of power. But um, definitely the Bush presidency going forward, the religious right has been a powerful force in politics that maybe prior to the Bush presidency, it was didn't quite have that same level of religious backing. Um, there was always a strong Republican identity and the backing of the institutions for it, but the religious flavor really took off. Um, they always fainted at it, mentioned it, but I think the Bush era was when um, that really took off. And then uh, Metal Gear Solid 4 um, is all about the privatization of the military, um, how instead of, uh, you can no longer have large-scale war between nation states because that just will eventually bring nuclear bombs and wipe us all out. So you saw during the end of the Cold War, the move to proxy wars, and then, you know, that eventually led to where we are with uh, the war in Iraq, and then we start hiring private military companies um, to kind of do the dirty work or do a lot of the work that we don't want the U.S. military doing for whatever reason. Um, usually it's just to make sure someone else gets money, uh, but, you know... Sure. So you kind of see that they're talking they're talking about the same time period um, a little bit. And you can see, see that shift a little bit in the themes of their stories or as they move to the next entry in their series. I think that's definitely true. I love that, that it's not just you can see them reflecting their time, but reflecting a, a change in their time and a change in their understanding of the big narratives of their time. Because I think that's definitely true in A Song of Ice and Fire, that there is a... And this is also, I think, just reflecting how a person ages. I think there is just a delight in cleverness in the first couple books that's not really there in Feast and Dance. And I think that's part of what some people were reacting to when they didn't like Feast and Dance is that there was there was a, a joy to George's writing in the earlier books that seems sapped out by the later ones. I'm sure that's in large part a part of the writing process that the books just took him forever. But I think it's also there is there is an anger in Feast and Dance that does seem rooted in the real world to me. Because, uh, yeah, the Sparrows, like, maybe George had some of that in mind, but it does it does come off like George just went, oh, right, the Catholics. Yeah, they've been there off screen the whole time. <laughs> Here they are, everybody. Um, and, yeah, I, I think part of that was him, you know, reckoning with conservative religious politics as something that was running the country maybe in a more kind of blatant, blatantly and hard-nosed way. And in a way that seemed to recognize an opposition whereas you know there was the attitude of moral majority in the 80s that we were the you know we're really america whereas you get to the bush era it starts you start getting to the death the end times desperation and the religious right where it's like oh no this isn't our country we're you know we gotta we're dead enders and we gotta make a bulwark and there's that i think that gets reflected i think yeah you get to marine and the sense of stagnation and there being no way out I think definitely reflects Iraq or like the uh, Quentin story in A Dance with Dragons, which I know a lot of people didn't like. But I liked in large part because I felt like it was 
George just reckoning with this this fury and despair of, of sending young men into that kind of scenario for no damn reason and watching them just do terrible things. Because one of the things I like about Quentin's story is that as, as kind of pathetic and afraid as he is, he does unabashedly commit war crimes to get where he's going. And I think that reflects how how George was 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 uh, trying to write about that 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 era of war and uh, era of American foreign policy. So yeah, I can I think you can you can see maybe not even uh, disillusionment setting in, but like the that the earlier games were these like delightful puzzle boxes and these delightful sandboxes for these auteurs, and then later on it's like uh I mean yeah I mean you can see it even in Metal Gear Solid like snake snakes aging. I have to think reflects how Kojima feels about himself at some level. That's like oh I've aged twenty years in the last ten. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you invoked a Quentin there, and um, even though he's not something I had in mind for my next point, I think uh, Quentin is a pitiable figure, even though, like you said, he does war crimes, he doesn't want to be, like, you're not supposed to necessarily empathize or sympathize in a way, but there is a pitiable aspect of them. And I think both Martin and uh, Kojima are interested in the soldier as a pitiable figure. Um, there's a lot of discourse online now about whether, you know, soldiers can be socialists or vet- veterans can, you know, properly champion left. None of this is just what they are, because um, often they're, you know, broken men or become broken men in the, you know, presence of war. Um, they become pawns for the people who play the Game of Thrones, who are those philosophers and patriots, those power brokers. Um, and I think they, there's a pity for the character, even as their stories are very strongly anti-war and they're trying to grapple with anti-war themes. Um, they, they, the soldier is also pitiable and often, you know, controlled by other people. And it's not to, it's not supposed to elide, you know, blame or responsibility on these people. Uh, you know, the people snake kills is very much an important part of those stories. And even though we get an appreciation for someone like Sandor Clegane or Jamie Lannister, their sins are not forgiven or redeemed. We just know more about them. We kind of see how they're, you know, pitiable in a way. That's kind of the, you know, operant word I'm kind of going here. And honestly, someone like Sandor Clegane or Jamie Lannister could fit, like, at least the themes that they're playing on about, you know, um, God, I can't even begin to start. I think with Jamie, you think about the myth versus the legend, like, uh, you know, the Kingslayer versus who he actually is. Uh, you know, Jeff talks a lot about, because Jeff's a bigger fan than you are of Jamie sure. Lannister, about how he's, you know, he has the trappings of a traditional hero. He's kind of portrayed as a villain through, you know, the first couple arcs as, you know, one of the, you know, team bad guys kind of thing. And then you find out more about him. He's much deeper. And then you kind of find out maybe he has done acts that lines up more with that traditional hero that, um, you know, his gold armor and his shiny sword might imply in, you know, more classic or traditional fantasy. Um, they're very much concerned with the idea of the myth versus the legend in a very liberty balance kind of way in Metal mm-hmm. Gear Solid. Um, because as much as the Patriots are fighting against Big Boss or Solid Snake, they still want to hold them up as America's greatest soldier, this legendary soldier. And you have side characters who meet Snake, like Meryl Sil- Silverburr, and she'll be like the legendary soldier himself. And Snake and Big Boss are both the first to say, uh, we're no match for the legend. You know, our story has been used as another tool of the systems that they're using to keep, you know, the kind of current worldview and world status quo in order. Um, so the whole idea of the myth versus the legend of these people, 
um, is very key to um, the story. And I think generally, um, this is a point I have a little later, but I'll just mention now, like the control of information, who knows what, when, um, and how information is revealed to the audience is both so key to uh, Metal Gear Solid and A Song of Ice and Fire. I think Jamie Lannister might be a great example of that uh, just in A Song of Ice and Fire. But um, the Metal Gear Solid stories work much the same way where you're kind of in media res, you're kind of already in the mission, and then you find out more backstory as you progress forward. I think you you have this kind of contrast that I think both Kojima and Martin explore where the the soldier is supposed to be the ultimate self-actualized individual, right? They're supposed to be in charge of their body, in charge of their mind, in charge of their decisions. They know their environment. But at the same time, they're not supposed to make decisions for themselves, ideally. They're supposed to follow command and work for the system and work for the larger unit they're in. So that that contradiction has kind of broken Jamie Lannister, whereas like I'm the best person in my generation, but I don't think for myself and I'm not supposed to think for myself. What That doesn't make any sense to me. And I, I think it gets in that that kind of myth versus reality divide you were talking about, that the, the idea of a soldier matters more than the soldier themselves. And I think these these characters start to realize that that the systems they're in just aren't designed to help individuals, that that's just not what these institutions are for. And some individuals are able to ride the wave more successfully than others, but making anyone happy just isn't what th- these systems are for. And like, I love you brought up Liberty Valance, which uh, for the unfamiliar is a uh, John Ford Western from the early 60s, where what the the official legend prince is, as the main character takes down the dastardly Liberty Valance, but it's actually a supporting character who did it like from off the side down an alley. And when the main character played by Jimmy Stewart tries to get that real story told, he finds that no one is interested and that everyone just wants him to be the hero. And no one is interested in his, his own, his own broken uh, emotions on the inside. And I think that's that, that insight into how, different generations and different archetypes have things in common that the knight is the cowboy is the mercenary soldier that they're all facing the same dilemma and that each era has its own way of keeping them from finding that out and finding out that they are still dealing with that same problem and that in the metal gear solid universe it quickly becomes modern media and technology and how these things are controlled and of course that's not the case in the song of ice and fire where the, the the mechanism is more of the songs and stories that's what's lying to you and that's what's keeping the cycle going yeah um, and, you know, thinking of Liberty Balance, I don't know how canonical HBO's depiction of the Tower of Joy is, but when you hear <laughs> about Ned Stark defeating Arthur Dane, you know, in battle, you know, that's a myth that, you know, Bran, you know, had in his head. But the way the show depicted it, it clearly shows that Holland Reed kind of aided very much and it wasn't, you know, it wouldn't be clean as Jamie Lannister would tell his father, you know, in a different episode. But um, you were talking about how, you know, the institutions are trapping. And I think another similarity I find between uh, them is the establishment of a community that goes against the institutions of its time. In A Song of Ice and Fire, we have the Brotherhood Without Banners, which very easily translates to big bosses, military sans frontieres, you know, an army without borders, a brotherhood without banners. These are collections of soldiers who fight for themselves, uh, supposedly fighting for ideals and against kind of like the power brokers at the time, because you know, who's in charge may change. And that's a key thing of Metal Gear Solid is, you know, one day we're allies, the next day we're enemies, and then the next day we're allies again. Um, Again, also very 1984. We've always been at war with East Asia or Eurasia or whatever it might be. 
Um, so, and then you see that they're following people that inspire them. Um, Gendry wants to follow Lord Beric. Like, that's someone who inspires him. Um, similarly, all the characters in Metal Gear Solid want to fight for a big boss. They see purpose and they see, you know, a reason to cherish both of them. And I need to draw this comparison. They both have eye patches, which must really sell people <laughs> on leadership. Of course. And also, Richard Dormer might make an excellent big boss character if they ever cast that role. But. Um, I think the other key thing about these uh, organizations is we can see how easily they can fall into disarray and disrepair. Uh, with the Brotherhood Without Banners, uh, you know, Beric Dondarrion eventually gives up the leadership role in favor of bringing back uh, Lady Catelyn Stark, uh, who becomes Lady Stoneheart. And what was what seemingly was a very pure intentioned organization soon becomes the revenge factory against Frey's, Bolton's, Lannister's, um, and anyone who supposedly aided any of them in the betrayals of House Stark and Tully. In a similar way, um, this Military Sans Frontiers, which has a couple rebrands as is, you know, the style at the time, but um, big bosses, you know, he, he's attacked and put into coma for nine years. And when he comes out of that coma and rebuilds this organization, it's no longer just this is a home for soldiers and we're going to do what's best and fight the times. It's very clearly some people hurt me and I'm going to hurt them back. Um, and that goes back to some of that Moby Dick uh, comparisons we made earlier, where it's very much a revenge driven story um, when Solid Snake or Solid, uh, when Snake returns to be um, the leader after his nine year coma and the story told in Metal Gear Solid V, The Phantom, Phantom Pain. So um, you kind of see what happens when ideals are then, you know, kind of re reorganized and reweaponized into petty revenge personal goals. I think it's interesting because in both cases, I think you have in part just a narrative problem being solved of groups like this can't be successful because then the story is over. So you have to have them corrupted or blocked off in some way so then you can have more kind of desperate individual attempts to save the day. But I also think that they both both artists in this case are working through their own idealism and trying to think, okay, so what would be the solution to these problems I've set up? And what would be the problem with that solution? How would How would that then have to to reckon with its own contradictions and it's it's a real weird thing that you know the the problem they're up against is power but you have to have power to confront an institution like that so how do you avoid your own corruption along the way and there's there's just no easy answer for that kind of question and yeah one thing i, I love about the the brotherhood and barrack is that barrack is one of those characters who seems like he should be the protagonist of the whole thing like he has this amazing resurrection backstory and he's incredibly selfless and he gives big monologues and he fights with a fire sword but he's a tertiary character and, and is gone in passing and he, yeah he literally passes his fire his life his cause to to lady stoneheart and then it, it all gets kind of uh withered from there because you know you can even see yeah if you go back into the mists of time to the early roots of the, the problems in the Metal Gear Solid universe. There were idealists back in the day, too, even among the philosophers who had good ideas. And this is, you know, this is where they ended up. And we're, we're seeing that, that that cycle work itself out. Yeah, for sure. Um, and moving on to my next point, because you guys are knee-deep in A Clash of Kings, I have to bring up the shadow on a wall concept that you so Wonderful. elegantly hammer home <laughs> uh, in every episode. And I love it. I, I think that's a great framing reference and touch in terms of talking style and substance of what's trying to be portrayed thematically or through character. 
Um, there's a very literal shadow on a wall moment in the early parts of Metal Gear Solid 2. Uh, Snake walks into a room and sees the shadow of Vulcan Raven, a boss you beat in the previous game, uh, projected against the wall. Uh, when he turns the corner, he realizes it's a toy of the character and just a flashlight projecting this shadow. But the idea of a shadow on a wall and the idea of the real thing versus substance is very core to Metal Gear Solid 2 specifically. Um, the idea of... So Solid Snake is this gruff, very sexy, you know, dark hair, dark features, mm-hmm. like, and a fully realized character. He's gruff, he has a backstory, he has everything. You play most of the game as this character named Raiden, who is pale. Um, he's almost androgynous in uh, appearance. He's very much a blank state. He's colorless, kind of in the same way you talk about how Game of Thrones is a black and white noir story, and then A Clash of Kings is this explosion of color. Metal Gear Solid 2 almost works backwards. You have this very colorful character in Solid Snake, and then you draw out all the color and all the things that make him interesting. And people were really annoyed with Raiden. Like, that is very much, like, the common reaction. And it's growing older and understanding, like, I was supposed to be annoyed with Raiden. I was supposed to think of him as a shadow on the wall, as not the real thing, as a poor imitation. Um, And not necessarily poor, but, you know, that's kind of the, you know, idea that's kind of behind it. And um, I I think another example of the shadow on a wall is something that happens very early between, in Metal Gear Solid Five. So um, I've talked about how Snake was in a coma for nine years, Obviously, to come out of that and then restart, you know, your military operations, your military, you know, organization, you have to get back in the groove of things. You have to rediscover who you are. You have to become Big Boss again. Um, so the very first mission in uh, Metal Gear Solid Five, you have to infiltrate a place called Guandala Town. Uh, Guandala meaning sunrise. And you have to, uh, you know, exfiltrate or extricate a prisoner, a hostage from that organization. It turns out Metal Gear Solid 3, um, uh, Big Boss's very first mission, he has to infiltrate a town called Rosvet to save uh, the scientist Sokolov. Rosvet and Guandala Town both translate to the same thing, Hmm. sunrise or Uh. dawn or something at the beginning of the day. So you kind of see ways in where Metal Gear Solid 5 is to reclaim your identity. We're kind of going through the same motions you experienced, you know, as Big Boss in previous games and previous missions. Um, And you'll soon, I don't want to spoil Metal Gear Solid 5 because it's, I guess it's six years old. But, you know, there's a reason that it's it's a shadow on the wall. It's a poor imitation of Big Boss or it's a copy of Big Boss. Um, it's very much tied to that. And the style and substance of what's actually happening is very core to the storytelling techniques of both authors. I like, I, you know, I, I always liked the ride and twist because every character is a meat puppet to a certain extent that you're projecting things into, even the ones with more fleshed out character traits. Like, yeah, you, you know, we talk about Solid Snake is, is very you know, gruff and likable and manly, but those are still just little signs that the creators threw in there that you then fill in the rest because you're familiar with gruff military dudes. You've seen another story. So you just associate snake with them and your feelings to them. And that process is what all of storytelling is. And I think MGS2 was just, was just uh, calling attention to that. And I think it's easy for that kind of thing to feel like, like smug or like it's, it's, it's poking its thumb at the audience and sometimes it does but i just think it's it's an interesting way of becoming aware of what your own brain does without your consent because when i when i see a picture of uh of any video game character my brain is going to do things that i didn't tell it to do and make associations that i didn't tell it to make and mgs2 is is about that process and about how that works with you and i i like that yeah yeah um and i think you know 
Um, there's a lot of storytelling techniques that Martin and uh, Kojima share in common. I think one is very, that they're just methodical plotters. Um, a lot of their stories, you know, they take their time to set everything up. They set their character up. They love to set all their pieces up so that when they start knocking them down, it just feels like a cavalcade of, it's exhilaration. Like to me, like the back half of Storm of Swords and honestly, like maybe unpopularly, the last two thirds of A Dance with Dragons. Like to me, so much happens. I know people complain nothing happens in A Dance with Dragons, but I feel like we're inching so close to that precipice that, that it's still exhilarating, even if we don't jump off that cliff, you know, so to speak. And I feel like a lot of Metal Gear Solid games, like, um, again, I'll reference three, there's a lot of upfront exposition, especially in the Virtuous mission, and then like the first half of the game. But once you start getting to that end sniper battle, then it just becomes boss fights, plot twists, you know, intrigue, um, your big fight against the, uh, you know, Shagohad, which is the Metal Gear equivalent. Like, it's the last back half is just exhilarating different action set pieces and boss battles. Like, and that wouldn't be so enjoyable if they hadn't taken the time earlier to invest in all the characters, um, set up the setting. Like, everything about it is perfectly crafted. And one of the ways they do this is immersion through detail. Like, and, you know, we talk a lot about Martin, his lengthy food expositions, <laughs> sure. his lengthy describing clothes, but it's always serving something, you know, the clothes is a reflection of class or something like that, or the food reflects where they were before the war started versus at, like, there's always a thematic tie to it. And I think when, uh, you know, with Kojima, the equivalent of like, you'll call someone on the codec and they'll describe your silencer to you or your gun to you. Um, and very often it's very much fitting in that same way. Like, oh, this was a gun used by Soviet snipers and that's why it has, you know, certain relevance to thematic, you know, Cold War themes here. Um, I should have pulled a specific example of that, but they're both working through that. And one thing I've been thinking a lot recently is about Moby Dick. Um, and, you know, I hate this refrain, but people love to say, oh, just skip the, you know, the spermaceti chapters where they spend all day talking about this is how, you know, you turn, you know, the sperm or whatever they get from these uh, whales and the very informational stuff. But I'm actually like, even though sometimes I struggled reading through those sections, it's part of the story. It's very much part of the immersion. And those details, even if they don't specifically pay off, they help create the tone and aesthetic that allows everything else in that world to kind of feel real. And you would think, you know, kind of military missions, they would have very detailed briefings and of stuff like that. So, um, and again, they're just all very well researched. Both of these people we've talked about are, you know, they, they create anti-war literature or art to the extent that anti-war art can be created depicting war. Um, but they're both, you know, very well researched. Like every term I know about medieval war warfare, I pretty much learned from reading *The Song of Ice and Fire* about halberds and gauntlets and lobster mail. Like, I like I kind of heard some of those terms, but really the terminology and lingo is something that both bring to um, their work. Kojima uses all the military lingo, um, acronyms like OSP, on-site procurement. Um, like these are things that get burned into your brain, and that's. They use that language of technicality very well to get their themes and their style across. I think there's, yeah, it's working at multiple levels. I think both of them have a love for specific language and, and subcultures for their own sake and then kind of picking apart those systems. And I think they are inspired and just impressed by large novels, large works like Moby Dick or Ulysses, where it's just endless descriptions that ground you in a time and place. And I think they want to imitate that. And then also, yeah, like you were saying, there are parts of both stories where things do move incredibly fast. But I think it's often underrated how 
those events hit home really hard because of how much uh, downtime you've had and how much was a slow burn. And so then you notice the change and that's what makes it so effective. Yeah. And, um, and I think all of this kind of leads to the fact that both A Song of Ice and Fire and Metal Gear Solid are very dense stories. Um, and they're ripe for picking apart in a multitude of ways. Um, I think the first one, you know, theory crafting is, you know, for better or worse, a core part of the A Song of Ice and Fire discourse. Um, I do like, you know, all the theory work that people do, but sometimes I think people, sure. the theories become the end in themselves as opposed Absolutely. to how does this theory advance. So it's something you guys talk about really well in your theory sections every episode. So I don't need to repeat that, but um, they're both things that allow you to kind of draw your own conclusions. Um, and they're both made for uh, revisiting the subject matter or revisiting the content. Um, I don't think A Song of Ice and Fire really is meant to be read only once. I mean, sure, you can, um, you know, and maybe when you have all the books in front of you, maybe it'll feel that way. But to me, the richness is every time I can come back, there's way more to get onto it. And I listen to what, like seven regular chapter by chapter or some kind of chapter <laughs> analysis. Time. And somehow all of you guys, whether it's you guys or Girls Gone Canon or Davos, you're always finding something new that I had never thought about. And, you know, this is over a decade having, you know, since sure. I read the books the first time and stuff. So um, the fact that we can still be drawing conclusions and, you know, finding that kind of analysis in this work, um, I think speaks to not not it just being dense, but it being dense in a meaningful way, in a connected way, in a way that speaks to its themes and characters in a great way. And, you know, this is kind of one of the places where I'm going to defend Kojima because <laughs> the common refrain against Metal Gear is that the plots are gobbledygook. Um, and, you know, they're not simple. Like, you can definitely get a surface level, like, oh, it's Solid Snake, he's going to fight a big robot, defeat the villain. You can definitely enjoy a Metal Gear on that game. But I think when you actually go into the details, if you want to and you spend the time with it, you'll see that it's incredibly well-researched. And even all these little conversations are all trying to add something. So I really don't like the word uh, gobbledygook. I prefer the term impregnable. And someone once told me, if you give me six good podcasters and a mic, I'll impregnate that bitch. <laughs> and that's basically exactly what I plan to do with uh, my podcast, with uh, Podcast on Frontieras, is like I said, you guys inspired us. I think Metal Gear Solid could have the same kind of treatment as something like The Song of Ice and Fire um, in terms of analysis. That's great. I love that density and that that room for for different perspectives and i think a lot of it is the combination of of both stories being incredibly dense but also leaving a lot to your imagination and a lot unsaid and i think that's hard to strike that balance but uh david lynch once said that he loves stories with strong structure but that also have gaps in them that you can fill with uh with abstractions and intuition and uh, hitting the hitting the sweet spot between the, between those two, I think, is, is definitely the goal. And I think that's what allows for really strong criticism because you can both explore the details and invent your own stuff. Or not invent your own stuff, but just draw your own conclusions. And that's great. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then I do want to kind of end this line of discussion about why A Song of Ice and Fire fans can enjoy Metal Gear Solid because you can approach it like Jeff and Emmett themselves. Because <laughs> um, I think, uh, you know, anyone who listens to this podcast know that you and Jeff, you know, you bring different viewpoints and different past experiences, um, you know, professionally, academically, you know, all sorts of, you know, different. But you guys are still able to find a fusion of analysis of critique on A Song of Ice and Fire, which is one of the reasons we all love these books. Um, in a similar way, A Song of Ice and Fire really opens itself up to 
all sorts of realms of analysis. Um, it can directly speak to your love of horror, of Eldritch Apocalypse, of mm-hmm. Lovecraftian nightmares. Like that's what a lot of Cyborg Ninja and Metal Gear Solid or Psycho Mantis. And then, you know, going later in the series, things like Vamp or The Man on Fire and Skull. Like horror is a key part. And they are definitely drawing from, yes, these are, you know, soldiers with enhanced powers, but it's supposed to invoke the devil or some kind of beast. And I think Metal Gear, even as a robotic entity, is supposed to be a kaiju. Yeah, it's a a monster in its own way. That's true. Yes. Um, So I think you can approach it that. But like I said, these are extremely well-researched military pieces of work. Like the details into like what handguns are used, why, who uses what weapons, the acronyms, the terminology, the camouflage. Like, I think Jeff could have a field day, mm-hmm. both saying how this is great and also how this doesn't reflect actual military <laughs> sure. experience. But um, Kojima, he brings in, you know, Japanese. He has, like, a ex-SWAT guy has been with him every game of this, who, oh, like, wow. shows him how things would work in the real world. So it's very much deeply rooted in that strategy, acronyms, lingo. Um, so, you know, it has, and it's not just that, but Metal Gear Solid is one of the few games where, you know, you're shooting stuff, but if you haven't eaten enough food or if you have a cold, your trigger hand is going to be shaky and you can't aim it. Um, if you don't sleep enough, similar situation. It's not just recreating the, you know, artifice of military, but also the experience of it as well. It's not just the objects, but the people in it. Um, so that's why um, it has that analysis. And also it's a very, it's an alternate timeline from our history, but it's very near. It, a lot of the same events that happened in our history after the Cold War happened in the Metal Gear, they just kind of recontextualize it or say the Patriots or Big Boss were kind of behind some of those sure. things. But um, you can play with those ideas because it is playing with the ideas of modern day capitalism and big C communism as you know executed by the USSR. Um, when you get into uh, Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker, um, that's all set in Latin America and the proxy wars that um, the KGB and CIA were fighting there. Um, Metal Gear Solid Five: The Pan- Phantom Pain is um, set in Africa and Afghanistan in 1984. And all the information about what's going on between the Mujahideen, uh, the USSR, um, I can't speak to the actual specific entities in the South African theater of Metal Gear Solid Five, but all of them are real. And, you know, there was a communist-backed one by the KGB. There was a CIA-backed one. Um, and it was all proxy wars. And the games are very much... Um, you rescue a hostage who's basically said before um, the Cold War, um, the I think it was like the Mbele and the Buta people were one and the same in whatever South African country. But then the communists and the capitalists came in. And now, you know, the Mbute and the... Or whatever the two factions I said were, they're now for, in forever war now because of those things. So... Um, If you're interested in kind of the historical um, development, especially of the Cold War and all that stuff, this allows you to also play with those ideas, but kind of in a near alternate version of that. Um, So, you know, kind of in the end, basically all I'm saying is that both of these stories, they're very fun, they're exhilarating, um, but they're also really rewarding to meditate on, to pick apart, revisit, break down. And just throw it out there, maybe have a podcast where you can provide synopsis, break down the story, character themes, foreshadowing, and all that good stuff. So uh, that's kind of my sales pitch to a Song of Ice and Fire fans, to not a cast fans, about why Metal Gear Solid is something that's um, worth investing in, uh, worth researching. Um, I do want to, you know, kind of give some ways people can enjoy Metal Gear because the games themselves might not be available depending on what you have. Um, the first Metal Gear Solid is 
not easy to find. Um, its rights are tied up really weirdly between Sony and there was a GameCube remake of Metal Gear Solid called Twin Snakes, and that kind of messed everything up. But Metal Gear Solid 2, 3, um, and Peace Walker should be available on most Xbox and PlayStation platforms. Um, Metal Gear Solid 5 is a relatively new game, and you can get it on uh, any systems and PC. And um, the other thing is, you know, not everyone loves video games. All the stories for all these movies uh, can be found on YouTube. Um, so if you just want to see what the narrative was of these uh, Metal Gear games, you can just completely soak that in through YouTube. You are going to miss out a lot because, as we talked about, the gaming aspect is very integral to the themes and the experience. But um, if you just want to see a very good spy movie, <laughs> uh, find Metal Gear Solid 3 full movie. Um, I think Kefka Productions is a YouTube channel that has all of them. Um, and it's still very much enjoyable. It's Spy vs. Spy, Betrayal, um, very much rooted in that James Bond from Russia with Love kind of aesthetic, but also Predator, Set in a Jungle, all that good stuff. So um, it's out there if it's something you want. But, you know, you could also just listen to our podcast and we will give it to you. Absolutely. So, yeah, uh, uh, check out uh, Metal Gear Solid in whatever uh, form you can or feel like it. And uh, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate you, you taking the time. So uh, tell everyone again where they can find you and they can find your new project. Yeah, so you can find me at Manuclear Bomb, mostly on Twitter. Um, you can also uh, follow our podcast, Podcast Sans Frontieras. Uh, we're on most podcast devices or uh, services now, uh, Apple, Spotify, Podbean. We'll be on Google shortly, Amazon, all that stuff. Um, you can follow the Twitter account of our podcast at Pod Sans Front. Um, which I'm sure will be linked in the show notes and stuff like that. Um, and I do want to take this opportunity to thank you, Emmett, uh, for allowing me to come on, because I would come on just to talk about anything, to be honest. I just <laughs> I just so happen to be starting a project, but I would, I'm would, i always you know, blessed to be a guest on this podcast. You guys talk often about you standing on the shoulder of giants. Um, I feel like you guys are some of the shoulders I stand on in both my A Song of Ice and Fire and my metal your solid work so as always thank you for allowing me on and thank you for being you and you can extend that to jeff as well although a little bit more begrudgingly <laughs> will do but no seriously thank you so much for saying that 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 makes me feel wonderful i'm always glad to be part of this part of this community covering all these stories in all directions it's, it's just great so uh as always folks you can follow us on twitter at not a cast a s o i a f you can shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. You can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter. You can find Jeff at Brendan Beefish on Twitter. And you can listen to our podcast basically anywhere you find your podcasts on Podbean, on, Sign on SoundCloud, on iTunes. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf where patrons get early access to our episodes. They get bonus episodes, access to our Slack and all sorts of things. So you can check that out. And like I said, we're going to have one or two more guest episodes going forward. And then early in February sometime we're going to have Jeff back on the mic and i know you all have missed him or at least will pretend you did so thank you so much for that so uh thank you so much for listening to this episode and we will see you with another guest which i will not announce yet but we'll see you with another guest next week